because God's nature is this self-giving, others-empowering, and therefore uncontrolling love, God simply can't control anyone or anything. God can't because to do so, God would have to deny who God really is. God would have to deny God's own nature. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy, that God cannot deny himself. Mm. This is good news. It's good news because it says to us that the horrific things that we have endured, that we've seen others endure, the, the bad things that happen in life, aren't caused by God, nor are they even allowed by God. Uh. It isn't the case that God could have stopped them, but chooses not to, to teach us a lesson, to honor someone's freedom or whatever, but God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 24, number 24. Today, we're sitting down with author, philosopher, and theologian, uh, Thomas Ord, and we're going to be talking about his new book called God Can't, as in God Can Not. Now, I'm not going to give anything away, but I will tell you that uh, this episode, and if you pick up this book, uh, is going to blow your mind and most likely blow up your theology. So um, get ready. If you've ever asked, you know, why does God allow bad things to happen? Uh, Where was God when? My spouse left, I lost my job, my loved one passed away. Um, Why is there so much evil in the world? If you've ever been victimized, taken advantage of, left to fend for yourself, abandoned, abused, hurt, you fill in the blank. Um, if you've ever, you know, gotten those shallow answers and you're tired of them, uh, God works in mysterious ways. You know, God will use your pain. Uh, everything happens for a reason. God is sovereign. Don't ask questions, just accept it. You know, that's who God is and he knows more than you do. Uh, if you've ever gotten those answers and you're tired of them, if any of those things have ever happened to you, if you've ever left feeling in those ways, uh, this episode and this book is going to speak volumes um, to you. So um, listen to this episode, go over to the show notes, and uh, you'll see the link to the book there. You can pick it up. Uh, Special music for today's episode is uh, courtesy of my friend Young Citizen, a local uh, hip-hop artist out of Charlotte, North Carolina. You can search him on iTunes, Spotify. He's all over social media. He's a great guy to support, uh, doing a lot of good things in the world. So go find him and show him some love. So all of that said, oh, and his stuff is also in the show notes, so you can go there and take the link directly to him. So all of that said, uh, let's jump into this episode, number 24, with Thomas Ord. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, today we are joined by theologian and author Thomas Ord, and uh, we're going to chat about his latest book, which is called God Can't, and uh, more on that in a little bit. But uh, Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for uh, dropping by. It's so good to be talking with you, Glenn. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to let Thomas introduce himself in just a moment. Uh, but Thomas, I came across your work while I was researching for my dissertation, and uh, I think you've probably seen some probably photos and clips of things online, but my dissertation is about how the church can use social media and uh, technology to connect with people and then connect people with God. And so your book, Theologians and Philosophers, using social media has really come in handy. So uh, oh, I, would, I would say thank you for that because you've helped me write a big chunk of my paper. So thank you. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great resource. And anyone, uh, it's for those who don't know the book, it's a collection of oh, 80 plus short essays by philosophers, theologians, and biblical scholars describing how they use various kinds of social media, their practices, their tips 
Um, so I'm happy that it was helpful for you. Yeah, I like it a lot. And uh, I have it right in front of me. It's all highlighted and bookmarked and dog-eared and all that different kind of stuff. So um, definitely a good resource. I look forward to reading your uh, evaluation, synopsis, your, your, your final product. Excellent. I look forward to your feedback. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> um, that, that said, could you spend maybe just a few moments uh, maybe introducing yourself with our listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with you? Um, you know, who are you? What do you do? What makes you tick? A little bit about your background, what brought you to where you are today, all that good kind of stuff. Sure. I'm a theologian, philosopher, scholar of multidisciplinary studies, which basically means I've got my hands in all kinds of pies and I ask questions that that move into all kinds of different dimensions of life. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my formal training has been in theology and philosophy. I have a PhD, a couple of master's degrees, but uh, I've been heavily involved in the science and religion dialogue and written several books in those in that particular domain. I'm a person who grew up uh, in a small town in eastern Washington state. My parents were both Christians. I went to church all the time, um, and I had a, many salvation experiences. I gave my life to Jesus many times when I was a kid, uh, but I began to take my faith very seriously in high school and went into college. I was one of those people who did a lot of uh, evangelism, door-to-door witnessing, I joined uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and, uh, you know, shared the four spiritual laws. Mm. And I was very gung-ho, knew the Bible very well, and was out and passionate trying to convince others they needed to become a follower of Jesus. Mm. Um, In the midst of that, I started asking, well, I've always been asking questions, but uh, some questions became more and more important to me. And I began studying those of other from other religious traditions, agnostics and atheists. And uh, my senior year in college, I came to the place where uh, the reasons I had for believing that there was a God no longer made sense to me. Hmm. And for the sake of intellectual honesty, I became an atheist. In fact, I will never forget one winter day coming to pick up my fiance and her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. Mm. Uh, she's now my wife. So she didn't give up on me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't give up on the quest to try to make sense of things. I wasn't an atheist for uh, you know years and years. It was a fairly short period of time uh, in part because my quest to try to figure out reality and my decision that there couldn't be a God was an intellectual one. And I kept at the intellectual task of, of working through the issues. And I eventually came to the place where I am today, which is my belief that it's more plausible than not that there is a God. I'm not absolutely certain there is, but I think there are good reasons to believe in God. And my deep intuitions about love, my deep intuitions about meaning, about truth and goodness and beauty, etc., make most sense if there is a God to ground those deep intuitions. Mm. And uh, so I went on to do pastoral ministry, got some degrees. I've been teaching for 18 years or so. Um, that's kind of who I am and how I tick. Actually, I should say one more thing. Yeah. Um, And it's more, it's actually very general, but it's probably the most important thing I can say. Hmm. Um, What I want more than anything else in life is to live a life of love. Hmm. That's the thing that motivates me most deeply is the thing that I think about most often during the day. And so that, not only shapes my life in general, but is at the heart of this book and why I wrote it. Hmm. That's so good. And I could definitely see having read the book, um, that heart and that desire to be a person of love definitely um, come out. Something that you said that uh, just interested me that I think our listeners might be interested in is you said that um, you were, you went through that season of being an atheist. Um, You, so to speak, came back to God. And now you're at this place where, um, you're even still not 100% certain that God exists. And I wonder, 
just if you could just take that apart a little bit, because I know I grew up in a tradition that said that, um, you know, part of being a Christian is being 100% certain of your faith. And if there's even yeah. like a little bit of doubt in there, then you've got problems and you have to deal with that. So I was wondering if you could just respond to that just a little bit for some, some people who might be asking that question. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you and I grew up in similar traditions. Yeah. <laughs> I have sung songs that have had lines in it, something to the effect of, you know, if you, if you're doubting, you're sinning or you're just yeah. not mature enough. If you have any doubts, uh, I think that's a very wrong way to think about things. In mm. fact, I think Christians are believers, not certainers. Mm. We're people who have faith. It's not blind faith, but uh, we're taking a risk that there are certain truths about God that really uh, are true, even though we can't know them with absolute certainty. Yeah. And here I've been shaped fairly profoundly by uh, a broader philosophical discussion about what things we can know with certainty, you know, going back to Rene Descartes, who said, I, you know, the one thing I can know with certainty is that I think, therefore I am. And yeah. it wasn't much beyond that, that he thought he could know with certainty. And I'm with him in that. Uh, there are very few things that I think we should say we know with certainty. Mm. However, the, I also am not in the camp that says we should just blindly believe anything. Mm. I'm not a, an advocate of blind faith. I think we ought to bring together experiences, evidence, reason, arguments, the way we live our lives, intuitions, and bring these all together to try to come up with a way to understand reality that really makes the most sense, even though we can't know it to be true with absolute certainty. Mm. That's good. It's like there's a holy responsibility to yeah through some of these things. Exactly. And sometimes... Uh, we have to use some of our deep intuitions to critique some of the other ideas that we might come across. Let me, let me take a, a one that I'm guessing a lot of your listeners have thought about. Um, I believe that we have genuine free will. Mm. I think our free will is limited, but it's genuine. Um, there are certain ways of thinking about the world philosophically, and sometimes these philosophical notions also are espoused by scientists that uh, might give you the impression that we're entirely controlled by our genes or by our neurons or by the atoms or by our heredity or by our environment or whatever, and that we have no free will. And yet, I think we all live our lives as if we really are free to some extent. It's what I call a non an experiential non-negotiable. And so if this deep intuition tells us something about our world and the way we live our lives, we ought to use it to critique those views that we can't know so well. The idea that some people say that our neurons control us so that we have no free will. Hmm. But that kind of takes us down a side path. I just thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah, that, that could be a, definitely a rabbit hole. Um, reminds me of Pete Enns wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. And yeah. of the whole idea there was that you know, the sin isn't so much in, um, you know, having a doubt or not knowing, but the sin sometimes peaks its way in when we think we have it all figured out and there yeah. are no questions and all those different kinds of things. So um, another good. nice, another nice book on that topic from uh, Greg Boyd called the, I think it's called the benefit of the doubt or something like that. Oh, I haven't heard of it. Yeah. I have my students read it sometimes. It's a good book. Okay. I will put that on my list of things to read for sure. Um, so God can't, that's the title of your, of your newest book. And, uh, I don't want to, uh, give away too much because I want you to share the content of it in a few minutes, but kind of set the stage for our listeners. The, the title is not a play on words. Uh, the book addresses the, what we might call the problem of evil. You know, why do bad things happen? Uh, why do bad things happen, especially to good people, seemingly innocent people? Um, why is there so much evil lurking around in the world? And uh, you're actually saying that God cannot uh, single-handedly on his own prevent this evil from taking place, which I think is definitely going to blow up some of our listeners' theology um, as it definitely <laughs> toyed with mine as I read through the, read through the book. But uh, as you know, this is the What If Project, and one of the things that we do here is explore the question of what if there are ways of understanding and thinking about God and the Bible and spirituality that are different than the ways in which tradition has handed us. And I'd say that the idea that God can't uh, definitely falls into that category 
uh, pretty nicely. So to start off, if you could just maybe sum up the book, like in a short paragraph, like in a minute or two, like what would it be like? Someone meets you in the elevator, you elevator pitch your book. Um, what is this thing about and why do people need to read it? All right, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. God loves everyone and everything. And God's love is inherently uncontrolling. God necessarily self-gives and others empowers. And that means that to complex creatures like you and me, that involves a certain measure of free will. To less complex creatures, that may mean agency or self-organization. To even less complex creatures, it's the power existence of existence. And because God's nature is this self-giving, others empowering, and therefore uncontrolling love, God simply can't control anyone or anything. Mm. God can't because to do so, God would have to deny who God really is. God would have to deny God's own nature. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy, that God cannot deny himself. Mm. And this is good news. It's good news because it says to us that the horrific things that we have endured, that we've seen others endure, the, the bad things that happen in life aren't caused by God, nor are they even allowed by God. Mm. It isn't the case that God could have stopped them, but chooses not to, to teach us a lesson, to honor someone's freedom or whatever. But God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. Mm. So because God's nature is self-giving and uh, not controlling, um, God can't go against that nature and thus control something. Exactly. It's not, I'm not saying that there's something outside of God that's limiting God's power. You know, I'm not yeah. saying you know, there are metaphysical laws or Satan or spiritual principalities and powers that externally limited God. Hmm. Nor am I saying God has voluntarily chosen not to control something when God really could, if God wanted to, I'm saying God's very nature prevents God from controlling others because God's nature is first and foremost, uncontrolling love. Hmm. Wow. That's good. So before we uh, jump into my questions for you, um, what made you write a book like this? Like what is obviously we're tackling the, the problem of evil. Um, but what made you write this book? Was it, was there something in your life that maybe triggered the, the deep wrestling? Was it because of all the maybe questions that you've received as a pastor, as a professor? Like what made you say, like, I've got to write this book. I've got to write this down. Well, I've been thinking about this question probably since I was about 12 or 13 years old. So mm. it's something that has been brewing in my mind. And it's I think not, a lot of... Not like you just thought about it last week. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I've been, you know, working out possible answers and, you know, mm. tweaking things, discarding things, coming up with new possibilities, etc. Um, I wrote a book about three years ago called The Uncontrolling Love an open and relational account of providence. And this book was published by uh, an academic arm of uh, InterVarsity Press, uh, InterVarsity Press Academic. And although I tried very hard to write in understandable language, and I got a lot of people who um, you know, said that they could understand what I was saying, it was still fairly academic in its mm -hmm. approach. And um, I started getting letters from people on Facebook or actual physical letters or, you know, tweets, et cetera. People started sending me notes saying that they had read the uncontrolling love of God and they found it super helpful. Most of the people, well, actually there was three categories of people that seemed to have this response. The biggest category was of people who had been hurt deeply Maybe they had been sexually abused or maybe they had some tragic accident or maybe one of their children had died because of some illness or, you know, something. And those people wrote me to say, oh, thank you so much for giving me a picture of a God who didn't just sort of stand by and allow these bad things to happen mm -hmm. when that God could have prevented them. Yeah. Um, then there was another group of people who um, 
I kind of call them, they're kind of on the margins of society. They're not mainstream for whatever reasons. And uh, they read the book and they realized this is a God who doesn't endorse uh, everything that happens in the world mm. that isn't uh, upholding the status quo and who cares not only for the marginalized, but uh, didn't, doesn't, isn't standing back allowing people to be marginalized. Mm. And then the third group of people I kind of just call theology nerds. You know, they're people who think deeply about questions and have been wrestling with this for a while. And they came across my book and they said, wow, this really makes sense. Uh, you know, thanks for writing this book. Mm. So given those responses and given that the Uncontrolling Love of God book was really narrow, more narrowly focused on questions of God's power, I wanted to write a book that would be more accessible to a wider audience. Mm. You know, the kind of book I could give my mom mm. or if my, my wife likes to call it, this is my Barnes and Noble book. This is the kind of book that someone could pick up at a Barnes and Noble, read it, understand it, not have to have a theology degree to figure out what I'm saying. And uh, I wanted to add some ideas that weren't in the uncontrolling love of God. So it's that kind of collection of ideas that are really the motives for writing this book, God Can't. It's really good. I love that you said that you that this has been brewing in you since you were a kid. Um, yeah. Because I think sometimes, I know, like a lot of, I know a lot of my listeners are creators in their own sense, whether they're into video stuff or photography or music or writing or anything like that. But so often we look at somebody who's an author and we think like they just sat down one day and wrote this book um, <laughs> and that's it. But just to yeah. hear that, like, you know, you've been thinking about this since you were a kid and now here you are, whatever age you are, and it's been birthed out of you. Like that's just a long process. And I think that's just such a healthy thing for people to keep in, um, keep in mind in their own creations. Yeah, I agree. You know, this, the, the ideas of God's love and power, I've been, I've been wrestling with them a long time. This is not the first time I've tried to articulate an answer in print. Mm. This may be the most uh, accessible version of my ar attempt to articulate it and the most um, comprehensive. But um, just like other artists who make pieces or do particular works of art and they have prior versions, yeah. uh, there's been prior versions of this particular set of ideas. Sure. It just continues to evolve, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. All right. So let's dig in. Um, to get the ball rolling, I've got a quote that I want to read uh, from the introduction. You say, I wrote this book for victims of evil, survivors and those who endure senseless suffering. I wrote it for the wounded and broken who have trouble believing in God, are confused, or have given up faith altogether. I'm writing to those who, like me, are damaged in their body, mind, or soul. This book is for those who don't call themselves victims or survivors, but have been wronged. They may not call what happened evil, but they hurt. These people wonder what God was doing when they were betrayed, personally attacked, or unjustly laid off of work. Where was God when they struggled through their divorce, had miscarriages, were cheated on, suffered a prolonged illness or had a freak accident. I know that when I read this, it really resonated with me and I'm sure it'll do the same for a lot of our um, listeners. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time here. Uh, where was God when? Because we all ask that, that question. You know, for me, uh, I remember asking when I was a kid, you know, where was God when my parents were divorced? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when was, where was God when my grandmother uh, passed away of Alzheimer's disease? Um, two years ago, my wife and I had a miscarriage. I remember sitting with her in the hospital room as we we're both crying and just mm -hmm. asking each other, like, where is God? Like what in the world is going on mm -hmm. right now? And, uh, you know, you present this idea that God was there, um, but God could not prevent these horrors from happening. So can you just kind of walk us through a little bit of your thinking around that? Because in the tradition, again, that I was raised in, you were raised in a lot of our uh, listeners were raised in like God can do anything. You know, God can heal. God can change events. God can intercept time. You know, God is omnipotent, all powerful. There's nothing too big for God. So can you help us just kind of wrap our minds around this uh, idea that God can't? We used to sing a song in Sunday school that had, I can't remember the words exactly, but it was something like this. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. Yep. 
And there are biblical passages, for instance, in the book of Matthew, there's a phrase that says something to the effect of nothing is impossible for God. Most Christians have thought that God's power means God could do just about anything God wanted to do, anything that's logically possible for God to do. Now, God may not do that. God may sort of withdraw or be voluntarily self-limited to allow us to act freely or to allow the forces of nature to, you know, have their usual way. But God could intervene to control someone or some situation or some act or something in nature to uh, single-handedly bring about the kind of result God wanted to bring about. Mm. And so when they saw, heard that phrase, nothing is impossible with God, or God is omnipotent, or God is almighty, or God is sovereign, they had in mind this idea that God is ultimately in control of things in the overall picture and occasionally controls the details. I don't believe that view of God is supported well by the Bible. In fact, I don't think there's a single example in the entire Bible that explicitly says God was the only actor in a situation to bring something about. I do think there's lots of illustrations in the scriptures in which uh, the writers say God did something. God acted to do X or acted to do Y. But it doesn't explicitly say that God did it all alone, that there were no creaturely contributions or cooperation. There wasn't any creaturely um, factors involved. But what we've done, at least most of us, even really smart biblical scholars and theologians, we've come to the Bible with a particular view of God's power in the back of our minds, this assumption about what God can do. And then we've come across passages like God did X or Jesus did Y. And we have assumed that must have happened in a controlling kind of way, a single-handed or unilateral kind of way. When the text doesn't actually say that, we've just assumed that's what would have had to happen. But think about what we do in our own lives and the kind of language we use in everyday situations. Um, I hope your listeners don't hate me for admitting <laughs> admitting what I'm about to say right now, but um, I'm actually a New England Patriots fan. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody uh, shut it off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years ago when they had a miraculous comeback in the Super Bowl and beat the Falcons, the headlines of the newspaper says, Tom Brady wins another Super Bowl. Is that headline correct? Yes, it is. But if we think that headline means that Tom Brady was the only player that played the whole game for the New England Patriots, of course, we would think that would be ludicrous. We know that Tom Brady can win a Super Bowl, but there also be lots of other actors and factors involved. Tom Brady may may have been a necessary agent or cause in that. They might have never won the Super Bowl had they not had Tom Brady as a quarterback. But he wasn't the only factor, the only agent. There were lots of other things that went on as well and other people involved. So in our everyday life, we say someone does something and we know that really there were other factors involved. But when we go to the Bible and we see that God does something, we somehow shut off this idea that God might have had cooperation from creation or the conditions of creation might have been right and just assume this must have been an omnipotent, single-handed kind of act. Um, I think we ought to rethink God's power in light of God's love. And that love is relational. There, it's always in relationship with others who are not divine. And if we have that understanding in mind, we can affirm what the Bible says about God's acting and not have to think that it was single-handed or unilateral. Mm. That's good. I was uh, having this discussion with my wife for the night because I was telling her about your book and uh, we were talking about it. um, She pointed out that story in the Gospels where, I forget where it was, but where the Gospel writer says that Jesus was unable to do any miracles. Um, yes. because he walked into this place, there was no faith and he couldn't do it. It wasn't that he chose not to, or he decided that eh, I'm not going to do it here. You know, he literally could not do it because there was not that cooperative 
um, aspect on the human on the human part. Exactly. It's actually uh, he goes to his own hometown. He right. can't do any miracles. Yeah. And there's you know once you start thinking this way, you read the Bible and you start to to think to yourself, oh, there are other things going on here that I didn't notice. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, I was reading in what in Mark's gospel recently. And there's a line, something to the effect that Jesus healed many. And I thought to myself, interesting, the author doesn't say Jesus healed everyone. Mm. Um, And yet I think when we see that word many, we think, oh, it must have been everybody that Jesus tried to heal got healed because it Mm. says many. But there's the possibility that Jesus didn't heal everyone. A lot, yes, but not everyone. Mm. That's good. Even when he asked the man by the pool, you know, what do you want me to do for you? It's almost yeah. like he needed that man's cooperative faith um, for him to be able to get up and walk. Uh, well, in all kinds of passages yeah. in the New Testament, mm-hmm. Jesus talks about the faith of those healed playing some kind of role. In fact, sometimes it's not even the person who's healed's faith that plays the role. It's the faith of those around them. Yeah. The story of the... Uh, the guy who's brought in by his friends and lowered through the roof to Jesus, Jesus looks up at his friends and says, your faith has made him well. Yeah. Now I think I want to be cautious when I go this direction, because as much as I emphasize the idea that, that to healing requires cooperative faith, I don't want people to get the impression that people who aren't healed Mm. aren't healed because they just didn't have enough faith or they're not cooperating with God. One of the things I do in this book is I very strongly talk about other agents and forces in our bodies and in our environments that might not be cooperating with God or conditions that might not be conducive and that we who do want to say yes to God's healing power might not be healed, not because we didn't cooperate and not because God didn't want to heal, but there were other forces, factors, or actors that weren't cooperative. Mm. That's good. One of the things I think that's really um, important that you, you, one important point that you just made is that kind of the idea that, you know, we've come to the Bible with the assumption of what God can do. Um, and then we read the stories of the Bible through the lens of that assumption. And I know mm-hmm. that that was something for me, like having gone through Bible college and seminary, like you, you learn these, you know, rules and laws about God that have been handed down through tradition, whether it's, you know, God is omnipotent and omniscient, all these different big theological words. And you take those with you to the text. You know, I can remember preparing for, for sermons and just having those um, different things I learned in my systematic theology classes and stuff like in the forefront of my mind and reading the Bible Mm -hmm. through that, that lens. But uh, sometimes it's just not um, the best way. And I think that we do that a lot, even with other things, like not to get off on a tangent, but even things like, you know, the whole topic of LGBTQ, you know, we mm-hmm. have this idea that it's sinful, that it's wrong, whatever. And then we read the Bible through that lens and we yeah. almost make it say something that it doesn't necessarily uh, really say. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I think it's inevitable that we have these assumptions that we bring to the text. Mm-hmm. Our task should just be to try to analyze those, those assumptions and ask ourselves, are there better assumptions that we ought to bring to this text? Um, and so I don't think we ever get to the place where we're without any presuppositions, assumptions. I don't think we're ever a blank slate, but we can be carefully analyze the kinds of ideas, the kinds of uh, assumptions we have when we read the Bible. Mm. Um, so intellectually, as I was reading this book, everything makes sense. Um, and I found myself Good. going over and over again, Yes. Like, this is brilliant. Like, why did I think of this? You know, like so much sense to me. Um, But I do have some questions that I wrote down while I was reading. And some of the questions are, are my own. And one of the things I've been trying to do as I'm getting the hang of this podcast thing is try to read people's books um, with the audience in mind. And like kind of what kind of questions would the listeners be asking if they were reading this book? So some of the questions are mine. Some of them are ones I think our listeners would ask, but I've tried to narrow it down to three, uh, maybe four if we uh, don't run out of time. Uh, but yeah. number one, um, doesn't, doesn't all of this kind of almost put God in a box? Because I was reading uh, not that long ago, uh, Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. 
And he mm-hmm. made uh, this one point. He said that once we answer all of the questions there are to ask about God, uh, we're no longer dealing with God. And the problem of evil is obviously like a huge question that people have been wrestling with for, for centuries. And although I, I love having a sensible answer, you know, as to why evil happens, uh, why bad things occur, why God doesn't seem to act. Um, doesn't an answer that's as neat and organized, well thought out, beautifully researched, well put together, um, take away some of the, the mystery behind God and how he works and what he's up to um, in the world? Like, does it almost minimize God or bring him down to our level or is there something else going on? Um, yeah, here. that's a great, great question. There's lots of uh, angles that I'd like to explore in responding it. Hmm. First, uh, let me take a crack at what the possible meanings are of that phrase, put God in a box. Hmm. If that phrase means, look, we've got God completely figured out, then I'm definitely not in that kind of business. I'm, I don't think I have God completely figured out. I don't think anyone who says they have God figured out <laughs> is very wise. If that's what it means to put God in a box, I'm not doing that in this book, and I, I'll never make that kind of claim. Mm. However, uh, if to say putting God in a box means this is a model or a way of understanding God, then I am putting God in a box. I'm presenting a particular box to the readers Mm. that I call an open and relational model. And this model has certain characteristics. It talks about, it begins with God's love. It understands God's power and knowledge in a particular kind of way. It privileges the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, So, One thing we might say is we might say, let's compare the boxes that are on offer to us. Which box seems to get closest to the way things seem to be in the world, in our lives, in scripture, and which ones are not as close? Mm -hmm. I'm offering a particular model, a particular box, and I'm saying to the readers, look, um, this makes the most sense to me. Does it make the most sense to you? Can it account for your life? the world, God, reality, the Bible, yada, science, et cetera, better than any alternative. I think it can, but if you come up with a better mo- model, uh, I'll switch to yours. <laughs> but this is the one that uh, makes the most sense to me, and I'm, I'm offering it to you because I think it might help you. Mm. Um, I also would want to say maybe just, just one other thing. Um, There are some people, especially people in the academy, who sometimes scoff at attempts to solve the problem of evil. Now, in fact, um, well, I won't name names. I was going (laughs) to, two names came to mind, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus (laughs) at this point. Um, There are people who make the claim that any attempt to solve the problem of evil and any claim to say that you have solved it simply means you don't understand God. Mm. And when I start to look carefully at that kind of claim, I often realize that the people who make it have their own commitments to what God must be like and who God is. And the solution that I'm offering is undercutting some aspect of their own commitment. And um, I want to be bold. I want to say, look, um, maybe it's the case that the traditional or conventional ways of thinking about God have actually been wrong. Maybe they don't make sense. And people who scoff at attempts to try to solve the problem of evil are not doing us uh, any good because they're tying our hands and not um, encouraging us to be to bravely reimagine God based on scripture experience, et cetera. Mm. Uh, there's also some people who say, well, just the whole endeavor to solve the problem of evil is just an intellectual exercise that draws us away from trying to make a difference in the world, trying to be, you know, uh, trying to change things to develop practices and habits or, you know, be an activist or whatever. I'm all for being an activist. I'm all for trying to change the world. But to those people, I say, um, look, if God has the power to control, 
then that means that God has allowed the crap that happened in our world in the first place. Mm. And any attempts to try to fix it, change it, any attempts to try to make the world a better place actually might be undermining God's plans for the world that God allowed to have happen. Mm. So I think we need to rethink God's power if we're really going to have a firm um, or more robust notion of what it means to be an activist who is responding to God's call to love. Mm. That's good. You know, the other night, again, I was talking to my wife and talking about the book and, um, you know, brought up in in a similar kind of a um, environment in church. We both learned, you know, that you just, when, when bad things happen, you know, it's, it's part of God's sovereign will. You know, God is, God is sovereign and you don't understand why he lets things happen. And we were just kind of dialoguing about, you know, different things that we've heard in the news and different situations that we know of, you know, friends and things like that. And talking about things that like, you know, if think about like child rape, you know, if God can stop that from happening, but he chooses not to like, that's, that makes God a monster. Right. I mean, that's just like, I mean, it's just like, there's really no other way around it. I mean, if God is just standing there in, in, the place where this is happening with his, you know, twiddling his thumbs saying, I could stop it, but this is for this person's good that this is happening. Like, it's just, this doesn't make any sense if you really think about it like that. Exactly. And it's even worse for the child who was raped, you know, for, for you and I to look at something that happened to someone else and wonder why God caused it or allowed it. Um, you know, that's one thing, but to be the victim in that situation, it's a whole lot more difficult to think that God really loves me. Mm. Is God punishing me? You know, these people ask, or these people say, is this some sort of uh, sadistic uh, 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 scheme God has in mind? Um, there's lots of psychological harm that comes not only to people who see evil in the world, but to the victims of evil. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of people, like in your experience, maybe who were at one point devout Christians, but maybe turned away from Christianity or maybe turned away from God altogether and you know became an atheist, do you find that um, at all that maybe the reason for that is because maybe they went through some kind of traumatic experience like that and they were told by the church, you just got to swallow it because that's just, yeah. you know, God just let it happen because God is sovereign and that's just the way it is. Yeah, I do find that. I mean, polls say that the number one reason atheists say they can't believe in God is this problem of evil. I actually think there's even more people who still believe in God sort of uh, vaguely or indirectly or kind of, but um, they haven't been able to make sense of what happened to them in view of God's power. And so they they live lives of uncertainty. They live lives uh, of confusion. And, you know, me writing this book is an attempt to try to help those people mm. to have a better way of understanding God's love. Mm. That's good. So my next question is, does, does all of this mean that God doesn't have a plan for my life? Like if God can't prevent evil and God can't prevent, let's just say me, um, I know dying in a car accident tonight. Does that mean that God has no plan for my life? Is he just kind of winging it? Because like, if he had a plan, I would think, and I could be wrong, that he would be able to manipulate different forces in the universe uh, to make sure that that plan comes to fruition. Uh, the car does not crash tonight. Um, I go on living tomorrow, kind of pursuing that um, God ordained plan, you know, for my life. Yeah, great question. Um, I actually have a book proposal uh, out on this particular issue uh, on God's plan or God's purpose. I think God has both general plans and specific plans. God's general plans are things like uh, to love, to make the world a better place, to bring salvation to the world, to heal the sick, et cetera, et cetera. They're very general And then God has specific plans for each individual, each creature in each particular moment. But none of the plans God has are plans that are coercive. None of them are plans that force us to do things. That means God's plans are flexible in how they're going to be carried out, but are steadfast in their overall goals. So let's let's take uh, my marriage as a good example. 
I have general goals for my marriage, that it be happy, that my wife and I, you know, support each other in our jobs and our family, that, uh, you know, we get to know each other better, that we as a couple can help others. These are very general kinds of things. And then I have very specific kinds of plans uh, for us. This morning when my wife went off to work, uh, we talked about what we wanted to do for the day and maybe what we're going to do after work. Uh, She needs me to take back some Christmas gifts that uh, she wants to return today. And so these are our very specific plans for the day. Hmm. Now, in that planning that we have both uh, engaged in, and I think God engages in this kind of planning in relationship with us, there are intentions, there are goals, there are purposes, but we also recognize that there may be some things that come up along the way that mean that we have to alter our plans. It could be that we get a snowstorm today and me driving to the mall to return gifts isn't going to be in the cards. It could be that, um, you know, someone gets sick. There's all kinds of things that could happen along the way that would mean we'd have to change our specific plans given the factors that, you know, just happen in everyday life. Mm. Our general plans would stay the same, but our specifics plans would uh, be altered um, depending on the circumstances. Mm. I think God then has these general plans that are true from all time and place, that God wants to create a, a loving world, God loves everyone. God wants us to love, etc. God has specific plans for us in every particular moment, but these specific plans are flexible based upon free choices people make, accidents, random things happening in the world, forces of nature, etc. And God is involved in this dynamic, ongoing relationship with us and all creation in this uh, in this plan of God's. Hmm. So God has a specific plan, but just because it's a God-specific plan doesn't mean that it's guaranteed to come to fruition um, given the various circumstances that might happen in the world. Exactly. Yep. Mm. Okay. In my view, God simply can't get God's way all the time mm. because God's love is inherently uncontrolling. Mm. That's helpful. So where, do, where does prayer fit into all of this? Um, because if yeah. prayer, you know, if I'm, if I'm praying for, um, uh, I don't know, something to happen in my life or a, a sick loved one or, um, some circumstance at my job. And if God is, um, if God can't, you know, to go with the title of the book, mm-hmm. where does, where does prayer fit in? Like, what, what am I supposed to be praying for on a regular basis? If it's not for God to come through and do something for me, um, yeah. I'm not able to do for myself with my own power. Yeah. Well, I know that's a deep one that we get into. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's funny. uh, I've, I've been uh, working with uh, this, the new book, God can't. And I was on Amazon yesterday and uh, uh, I noticed that the book just below it on the Amazon page was titled, you can't, but God can. Mm. And it, it's sort of playing off the thing that you've probably heard in sermons, just like I have heard in sermons, which says something like, you know, you're trying to do this all on your own. You need to let go and let God take yep. care of it. Yep. As if, you know, the, you have three options. One option is you do it all alone. The other option is God does it all alone. And then the unnamed option is maybe you need to do things together. Mm. Well, it's that unnamed option is the one that I think is the truth of all reality all the time, that we can never, ever do something totally on our own and that God can never, ever get some sort of result in the world totally on God's own because God always uh, requires this cooperation. Mm. That means that prayer really makes a difference. Prayer really matters. The traditional views of God power ultimately don't mean, uh, ultimately imply that prayer doesn't matter. Mm. And it doesn't matter in two ways. One way has said that God has foreordained and foreknown everything that's ever going to happen. And that means that any kind of prayers we have asking God to do something don't really make a difference to the God who's already predestined and preordained and foreknown everything. Um, 
Now, a lot of people set that aside, at least temporarily, that kind of view of God. And they say, okay, well, maybe God hasn't predestined it all. And whether or not God foreknows things, that's kind of a hairy question. I'm in the camp that says God doesn't, but they sort of, they're not quite sure what to think about that. But they think that God could, if God wanted to, do just about anything. God could heal Uncle Mary's cancer. God could fix the problem at school with the school bully, whatever. And then if you have that kind of view in mind, it's awfully hard to think that prayer really is going to make a difference because God could do it whether or not we prayed or not. Mm. God could just up and, you know, fix the bully and cure the cancer and we wouldn't have to pray. In fact, it makes it kind of worse because if God's sort of waiting around twiddling his thumb saying, you know, I could cure that cancer, but I'm not gonna until you pray 87 times, Mm. you know, then you've got a God who's a moral monster. You've got a God who's fickle. And um, that doesn't paint a particularly loving view of God. The view that I'm proposing says that what we do makes a difference to God and that there are things that can't simply can't happen in the world unless we act, that God can't bring about things all alone. Now, it also means that there are certain kinds of prayers that don't make any sense. Um, If I pray God force Uncle Joe to become a Christian. Mm. Well, most everybody thinks that's kind of a stupid prayer because most people think (laughs) that, you know, Uncle Joe's got free will and God's not going to force him to be a Christian. Well, if we think that's true about Uncle Joe, and if we take that idea and move it into all of reality, we're now getting to my view of God's relationship with the world. God not only can't force Uncle Joe to become a Christian, God can't force the the cells to become non-cancerous. God can't unilaterally or single-handedly stop the bully at school. That means that we have a role to play, that the cells, the cancerous cells have a role to play, etc. So when I pray for things, I don't ask God to single-handedly fix something. I pray and I express my Uh, desires that God help me and others cooperate in God's work to heal, God's work to make a just world. And so I'll pray a prayer, something like this, God, uh, you know, right now I'm dealing with this uh, problem at work. I don't know what to do. I know you care about it. I know you care about everybody involved. Give me some insights on what I ought to say. Give me some intuitions on how I can be a loving person to those involved. Um, in that kind of way, I'm opening myself up to cooperate. I'm showing that I have faith to use the more biblical language and my prayers really can then make a difference. Hmm. That's good. I remember in a, I think it was an evangelism class in college and a professor was talking about, you know, evangelizing the world and you know, all these different things. And I remember a student raised his hand and said, you know, well, you know, we learned in our um, theology class that, you know, God knows everything and God knows exactly what's going to happen. And God has ordained all the different things in the universe. So what's the point of me evangelizing and what's the point of me praying for somebody um, if God's already made up his mind about what's going to happen anyway. Right. And so mm-hmm. that idea that, that you brought up that, you know, prayer in the sense of God having foreordained everything, prayer is almost kind of useless in that kind of a category. Uh, exactly. God already has it all figured out. Anyway, but I love this idea that, you know, God, God can't fix evil on his own. And so prayer really matters almost so much more because it's about cooperating with him to eliminate yes. evils of the world, um, as opposed to just sitting back and expecting him to do it on his own. Yeah. And, and think about the way that our words influence other humans in our lives. You know, I have uh, three kids and my words have influenced them in powerful ways. So um, if we think that our words and our actions influence those beyond our own bodies, why wouldn't we think that prayer can be words and actions that can have an influence on those beyond our own bodies? And if we think that God is present throughout all reality, that our influence upon God can then in turn have an influence on others. Mm -hmm. So we can have both direct and indirect influence on those we pray for. Mm. That's really good. 
think, uh, you know, Mark Harris, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Harris. So him and I went to college together at NIAC and, um, I think he has a book called like conspiring prayer where he kind of talks about that idea of yes. conspiring with God, um, to eliminate the evils in the world. Yeah. I, I recommend that book. The book title I think is divine echoes, but you're right that the, uh, main theme is, or his main idea is this conspiring prayer notion. Yeah. That's really good. Um, Hey, we're just about out of time. I don't want to keep you um, too much longer, Um, but thank you so much for for doing this and just the hard work that you put in um, to this book. Uh, I feel like the the world is going to be a better place for it. And I think the church is going to be challenged Mm. for it just to think differently about um, things that we often take for granted in our theologies and um, the things that we we think we know about God. Um, I think this is going to be a really good stretcher for people. So thank you so much for writing in and for coming on to the podcast to talk to me about it. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I mean, as I said, this book was really written to help people think about God differently in ways that can help them. It's the kind of book that I, I expect people will read and then recommend to people that they know who are asking these deep questions, people they know that they've been hurt or abused or had some sort of tragedy happen in their lives. I really do want to help people. I really do want to live a life of love. And this, this book is just one expression of that. It's really good. Well, I think this book is going to do that for a lot of people. So. Good. You know, one of the things I did learn today in this discussion that I didn't know before, mm. and that is that you have a really smart wife. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. We were actually sitting out on our back porch and she was, uh, she was cutting my hair. She was buzzing my hair and we were talking about the book and she just dropping all these wisdom bombs on me. So uh, she's definitely very smart. <laughs> good, good. I'd love to meet her someday. <laughs> uh, well, someday. Maybe we'll get her on here one time to talk to you too. That would be fun. (laughs) Thank you, Thomas. You have a great day and uh, we'll see you online. All right. Sounds good. See you. you, Bye-bye. Thank you so much for dropping by. That was a fun um, conversation to have. Uh, that was all new kind of stuff for me. Uh, the idea that God can't is uh, an idea that I had never come across before. But after I read the book, uh, I just kept thinking, like, this makes a lot of sense. And uh, I knew that I had to sit down and talk to uh, Thomas. So I'm really thankful that he was able to make it um, on the podcast. You can go over, like he said, get his book. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's available all over the place, wherever books are sold. Um, even Kindle, iBooks, all that kind of stuff. So it's an easy read, a pretty quick read. Um, It's not like super deep. Um, You can read it in like a coffee shop um, on a break at work. Um, Not like you need a super quiet space. So uh, go pick that up. God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils by Thomas Ord. And uh, also, last thing, if this episode or any of the episodes really have impacted you at all, if they've encouraged you, challenged you, made you think a little bit different, um, would you head over to iTunes or your podcast listening platform of choice and uh, just leave some feedback, give it a rating, leave a comment. Um, All of that stuff is super helpful for me because not only does it help me see um, what people are thinking, uh, but also if someone else comes across the episode or the podcast um, on iTunes, for instance, They will see the rating, they will see the comment, they will know what to expect. And also the more ratings it gets, uh, the more the algorithms work, I guess, in favor of the podcast to be um, seen by more people. So if you could do that for me, uh, that would be amazing. And uh, that's about all for today. This is episode number 24 with Thomas Ord, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye.